So John the Baptist is not some um, extreme innovator, but he's actually borrowing from and drawing from this Old Testament practice. Um, and so, what is this? What was the meaning of baptism in the Old Testament? Right? We, we don't actually see the word baptism or the practice of baptism, but baptism is evoking a ceremonial washing in the Old Testament. So we see this, for example, in the New Testament, Acts twenty-two. So can I have uh, Theo read for me? This is Paul in uh, I think Acts twenty-two. Yeah. Sure. Um, Here. Uh, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Right. So he says, be baptized and wash away your sins. So that's the uh, the meaning uh, evoking, the, going back to the Old Testament, of our sins being washed away. Peter as well evokes this. Uh, Justin. <clears throat> Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right, so Peter's saying it's not merely the removal, right? Because what does water do when you take a bath, right? If you're doing it correctly, you're removing dirt from your from your body. He says it's not merely that. Think deeper, beyond the metaphor, but it's the removal of therefore sin, right? And so the symbolism of baptism is washing away your sins where the dirt is a picture of sin, okay? So baptism... The imagery is um, the dirt is sin, and the waters of baptism is the cleaning of sin or cleansing of sin. Cleanses sin. Does that make sense? It's a very easy, understandable metaphor imagery, right? And so, where do we see this in the Old Testament? There are literally dozens and dozens of passages. Let me just point out two for you. For example, Leviticus 14. Leviticus is all the clean laws in the Old Testament, right? Every time you came into contact with something unclean, right? Like pus or vomit or something disgusting, dead, right? Putrefying. You had to clean yourself. You have to go through this ritual cleaning. So, for example, Leviticus 14. Where are we? Can I have uh, Erica read um, Leviticus 14? He shall wash his clothes in battle, his, or bathe his body in water, and he shall be clean. He shall be clean, right? Now, were the Hebrews just super interested in hygiene? No. What kind of cleanness are we talking about? We're talking about spiritual cleanness, right? Also, for example, um, also example, uh, Exodus 30. Can I have a Chelsea read that for us? The Lord said to Moses, You shall make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of, meet, of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, which with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. Right, so this is the temple, right? Uh, this is the Holy of Holies. And one of the most prominent features in the temple grounds, in the temple complex, was this enormous bronze basin, right? You would see it immediately when you come in. And what were the uh, priests doing? They were constantly washing themselves because they were serving, they were standing before a holy God. And so they had this uh, bathing uh, receptacle, this uh, vessel, where they had to constantly wash themselves. And notice, if you look at the text, verse 19, right? It says at the very end, right, they were to wash what? Their hands and their feet. I think that's very significant because why didn't they wash their whole body? The, For example, the high priest had to wash his whole body three times, in fact. So why only the hands and feet, right? Like, if you're a doctor and you're about to scrub up, would you only just wash 
certain parts, you would watch the whole thing. So is this a shortcut for efficiency's sake? What's, what do you think is the answer? Why only the hands and feet? It's symbolic. Yes! And because it's symbolic, you don't actually need to scrub up your whole body. Does that make sense? Because it's the symbolism of it, right? And the symbolism is you're not actually removing dirt. It's not like, oh my goodness, you have a piece of dirt on you. You're unclean. No, it's a picture of your spiritual inward uncleanness. And so by washing, you're reminding yourself that you're standing before a holy God and you need inward cleansing. Okay, and therefore, okay, notice the priests only wash their hands and feet and therefore, you don't, the, the amount of water <coughs> is immaterial. Does that make sense? It doesn't matter. And there's this huge debate among Christians about how much water you need or the mode of baptism, right? Is it immersion? Is it pouring? Is it sprinkling? And um, the answer I'm going to propose is it doesn't matter. They're all valid modes, right? Our Baptist friends, our, our, our dear Baptist brothers, they make a huge deal out of this. And they say only immersion. And if you're a truly hardcore Baptist, if you've been, if you've been baptized by uh, pouring a sprinkling, they'll say, that's not a real baptism, you need to be immersed, right? And I would say to them, you're missing the point, <laughs> because it's a inward, it's a spiritual, it's a symbolic cleaning, right? So, for example, Exodus 36, um, where are we now? Can I have uh, Ezra read that? Okay. Um, Ezekiel 36? Yes. I will sprinkle clean water on Wait, you. so... Notice he says sprinkle, which is what? How much water is there in a sprinkle? Drops. Right, drops. Keep going. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, penises, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of... Oh. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Right. So Ezekiel goes very much into detail. Right? What is this cleansing that he's talking about? It is very clearly a spiritual inward cleansing because it's a picture of regeneration. He says, God says, I will take out your heart of stone that's dead to me, that's deaf to me, and I'll give you a live beating heart, a heart that loves me. And what is the picture of that? Sprinkles of water, right? And the sprinkles of water is this inward cleansing and therefore, the, the, the amount of water really doesn't matter. You guys remember in Exodus 24, for example, a very uh, important passage in the Bible where Moses is ratifying the covenant. And the people all say, we will obey, right? And then he sacrifices some oxen, right? He, 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 he kills some animals. And with this blood, right, the sacrificial blood, he doesn't pour it on the people. He doesn't bathe them. What does he do with the blood? He sprinkles the blood, because just a few drops of the blood represents that your sins have been paid for, right? That your sins have been covered by the sacrifice. And this is not just an Old Testament imagery. And again, we could evoke a dozen passages where sprinkling is a sufficient mode. Hebrews 10.22, where are we? Um, can I have Eric? Let us draw near with a heart, a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Right. So, our hearts, again, this is an imagery of inner regeneration, of, of spiritual cleansing, is sprinkled, right, meaning few drops, clean. And I think Hebrews here is absolutely evoking 
what happens uh, in the Old Testament, right? Especially with Exodus 24. And notice he says, just to make sure you, do, you don't miss the point, our bodies are washed with pure water. So the sprinkling washes the whole body. And is he, again, talking merely physically? No, he's talking about who you are, everything, your heart, your soul, your mind, washed with sprinkles of water. Because we're ultimately talking about what? Jesus Christ on the cross. Okay? So therefore, conclusion. And here, I'm going to slip into my Presbyterianism, right? I'm going to try to persuade you. And let me just say, at the outset, that if you remain a confirmed and convinced Baptist, it is okay. It's fine. You know? Um, My argument is that any mode is fine. Sprinkle, pouring, immersion... They're all legitimate because it's the symbolic cleansing that matters. And I actually think immersion is a truly beautiful way to be baptized. Because um, you don't just have a little bit of water, you have a ton of water, right? But I think um, we need to be generous to other believers. If you're an immersion kind of person, you say, I love immersion, right? And we say pouring and sprinkling is legitimate. And I think with respect to IGC, uh, for very practical reasons, we sprinkle. Because we don't have a, a river nearby, we don't have a pool of water, and so historically speaking, uh, many churches do resort to sprinkling simply because there's just not a lot of water nearby. And if you look at Baptist uh, worship services or Baptist churches, when they do baptisms, they break it from the worship service because they go to a river or they have a baptismal pool, and it's too unwieldy or uh, uncouth to do it in the middle of the service. They do it after the service or they do it later on in that day, and so they break it from the worship service, and I think actually that's a great tragedy, because the Lord's Supper baptism properly belongs in corporate worship. It should be done in the worship service, and so for practical reasons, we sprinkle. Any questions? Yes? Um, what's the what's on the Baptist side? I'm glad you asked that. I'm about to go there. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Any other questions? <laughs> you anticipate? We're thinking the same, Dave. Any other questions? All right, so the, the chief Baptist counter-argument is they say, well, the Greek word baptizo. Has anyone heard this? The Greek word for baptism, which is baptizo, always and forever means immersion. And therefore, all baptisms without immersion is illegitimate. That's their argument. It's a uh, linguistic lexical argument, okay? And um, my response, and everyone's response to that is, very respectfully speaking, you are wrong. Because if you go to any Greek-English lexicon, any, and you look up the word baptizo, don't do it on the internet, because 90% of the internet websites are militant Baptists, and they'll just say it only means immersion. I'm very serious about it. This is a, this is like a huge point of like fighting, right? If you go to a scholarly English Greek lexicon, the primary meaning of baptizo is to wash, to cleanse, and there is a secondary meaning to immerse. Okay, so. It's not, uh, the word doesn't settle the matter. And I think, practically speaking, if you study the book of Acts, there are several places where immersion doesn't make any sense. 
So, for example, you have the story of the Philippian jailer and his family, right? Remember, Paul preaches the gospel to the Philippian jailer, and he says, can I be baptized right now? And it seems very practically hard to see Paul. Okay, remember, this is the dead of night. This is the middle of night after a major earthquake, wandering around the city of Philippi looking for a body of water to baptize. I can only immerse you, Philippian jailer, so we have to look for a river somewhere. It, I think it makes much more sense that he sprinkled in that situation. Or what about Pentecost? We're told that 3,000 people at Pentecost believed the gospel and were baptized. This is inside the city of Jerusalem, a very dry and dusty city. Where did they get all that water to immerse 3,000 people? I think it makes logical sense that they were possibly sprinkled. So, And a lot of people say, well, what about the Jordan River, John the Baptist? Right? John the Baptist um, goes to the river. Doesn't that indicate immersion? It could. Again, I think any mode is acceptable. But I think very uh, very possibly, but John the Baptist just picked up water and and poured it or sprinkled it on a person. And I think the, the, the fact that the, it's a river, the, the primary meaning isn't immersion, but it's the fact that the Jordan River is right here. This is... This is the promised land. And so he's asking the Jews to go back out into, past the Jordan River and to recross back inside. And so in their cleansing, they, they need to be recleaned to become the people of God. I think that's the main imagery. All right, so that's my counter-argument to the counter-argument of about this. Any quick questions or comments on that issue? Dave. Um, just off the top of my head, I don't recall, but there are verses that indicate explicitly that people were immersed, fully immersed, or no? It's just inferred because inferred. they're near a river. That's right. So, for example, the Ethiopian eunuch, right? This is Mark chapter 6, is, or not Mark, uh, Acts, Acts 6 or 7 or something like that. So there's uh, Philip the Evangelist, and uh, the Ethiopian eunuch believes, and he says, there's a river. He says, why can I not be baptized here? And so people automatically think, river, aha, immersion. But that's only if you think immersion has to always be the case. But I think it's quite possible that Philip just poured water. Even if it is immersion, again, it doesn't matter. Then why wouldn't Hebrews say our hearts are immersed clean, right? It says our hearts are sprinkled clean. That would be my response. Mm -hmm. So I would say Presbyterians are very generous. They say sprinkling, immersion... Pouring. It's all good. We're very embracing. The Baptists are very limited and militant on this issue. All right, so let's go on. Enough beating up on our Baptist brothers. We love them. <laughs> um, so the imagery of baptism is cleansing, but the secondary, not, it's not secondary, there's a dual meaning. So it's cleaning and it's death. Okay, so um, so how do we get there? Um, baptism is a picture of our union with Christ. Right? We talked about this last week, right? It's a uh, and what I mean by picture is a sign and seal. Um, our union with Christ is how is the basis of our salvation. And 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 to give you a quick analogy, Paul gives us the analogy of marriage, so that when you're married to your spouse, everything that is mine is yours. Everything that is yours is now mine. So that's how we're saved by being united to Christ. And look at Galatians 3.27. So where are we? Uh, Dave, I think, right? Yeah. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Yes. So this is very important language, okay? Uh, 
into Christ. That's a very interesting... Who's a grammar nerd? Is that a preposition? I don't even know what that's called. That little word, right? <laughs> um, it's a very interesting word to use. Why not say we are baptized for Christ? We are baptized because of Christ. He says we are baptized in to Christ. And so this is union language. We are united to him. We are one with him in baptism. And therefore, because we are united to Christ, we can then put on Christ like clothing, right? He says in Galatians, we can put on Christ, we put on his righteousness and his, and his merits. And so we see this exact same language in Romans chapter 6. So where are we? Can I have uh, Ashley read it for us? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ right, so, Jesus... Sorry, I'm sorry to always interrupt you. So again, there's that, ne- that language, right? Sometimes we just read right through it, but we should be, wow! We're baptized into Christ. We're united to Christ. Keep going. We're baptized into his death. We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Right. So, baptism is a sign and seal of our union with Christ, specifically his death and his resurrection. Right? So, that his death to sin and judgment is our death. Even though we didn't die on the cross, we didn't suffer on the cross, all the benefits or the payment of that death belong to us, and his resurrection to newness of life belongs to us as well, because we're united to him. We're baptized into him. We're connected to him, right? Um, and so I think this is why, in many ways, baptism, I think a good analogy is marriage. When you marry someone, everything that is theirs is now yours. When you're baptized into Christ, everything that is his is now yours. And everything that is yours is his, meaning all your, your sin and guilt. And so there, there's a dual meaning. It's, it's the, 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 the baptismal waters is cleansing waters. It's bathing pure, clean waters. And it's the waters of death, right? Um, and the Bible is full of imagery of water representing death. So, for example, Noah's flood. How did God just uh, judge the whole world? With water. My right? water represents death. Or the exodus. There's a movie coming out about Exodus. I hope it's not as bad as Noah. But there's going to be the Red Sea crossing, right? And what happens in the Red Sea crossing? The Egyptians go across, and the waters come over them, drown them, kill them, right? Or what about Jonah? Jonah goes out to sea, and he's tossed overboard into the water where he dies, so to speak. Right? He's, swall- he's actually saved by being swallowed by the fish. And so a water in the ancient world had a very... Um, threatening, uh, menacing uh, feel to it. Water was a scary place to be on, because you're not on steady ground. You can die. And let me just go back to the previous debate about immersion. So a lot of people say, aha! So that's the second argument the Baptists would say. Um, since we're baptized into Christ's death, right? The, the proper imagery is that you're immersed, and this is sort of the grave, and then you rise again. And I will readily concede... I think that is a wonderful and beautiful imagery. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Um, but I think that just as likely, you can say, here's some water. How do you draw water? <laughs> <laughs> so little water droplets, that water represents death. Again, it's representational death. So I would say gently to the Baptist, if this is really the thing, that we should just drown the person, right? <laughs> Die, right? <laughs> Um, but the waters represent death. So as long as there's water, I think the imagery is sufficiently conveyed. It's death. 
right? You're dying with Christ, just as Christ died for you. All right, so any questions about that? So it, it represents cleansing, it represents death. That's the dual imagery. Think back to when you were baptized. That's what was happening to you. You were being cleansed of your sins, only because of Christ, and you were united to him in his death. His, his, his death on the cross is yours. Any questions? All right. Um, the, the next aspect I want to talk about is that there is a vertical and horizontal dimension to baptism. So, so far, we've been only talking about the vertical, right? What does it say about our connection to God, our relationship to God? But there's also a horizontal um, aspect to baptism. What does it say about how we're connected in community? Okay? And I think this second aspect, the horizontal aspect, is tragically missed and lost in our common understanding of baptism. Almost everyone understands the vertical to some degree, but the horizontal is completely lacking. So the next point I want to make is baptism is our induction into the church. So it relates to church membership. Okay? So for example, Galatians 3, where are we? Michael, can I have you read that? Uh, for as many of you were baptized into Christ. Wait, so, so remember again, right? <laughs> this is union language. We're baptized into Christ. We're connected, right? That means um, um, here's Jesus, here's us. Because we're baptized, now we're connected. We're one, okay? That's very important. Keep going. Uh, I've put on Christ. I've put on Christ. Right, so let me stop you there. So that's, so that's <laughs> wait, so, so this is very important, right? So he's talking about the meaning of baptism. We're connected to Christ. What else does it mean? What is the implications of this union with Christ? What does our baptism tell us? Keep going. Verse 28. Um, Therefore, (laughs) (laughs) there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Here's according to the promise. Yes, wonderful. Notice that the implications of baptism is that we are then connected in Christian community. So that all of these differences that irritate, that uh, block, that, that create barriers, there's no more. There's no Jew and Greek. There's no black and white. There's no slave or free. There's no rich and poor. There's no um, uh, men and women. We're all one. That's what baptism tells us, right? Um, it connects us into community. There's, uh, this is even more explicit in 1 Corinthians 12. So, Tommy, can I have you read that? For in one spirit, we, are, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. Yeah. Um, there's another passage that says almost the same thing, Ephesians 4. You can look it up on your own. But Paul, notice he says virtually the same thing in 1 Corinthians 12 and Galatians 3. Right? He says that same language. There is no Greek or Jew. There is no slave or free. Do you notice that, right? And notice, he says we are baptized into... Now what does he say? Does he say Christ? No, he says we are baptized into the one body. Right? So this is very important language. Into, so this is union language. We're connected. Remember, it's like a marriage, right? Into one body. What is this body he's talking about? He's talking about the church. The body of Christ, of course. Right? And 
Therefore, we are baptized both into Christ, and when we're baptized into Christ, we're also baptized into his body. There's a horizontal dimension, right? And therefore, um, this makes total sense if you understand the whole Bible and you understand what salvation is, which is that when you are saved, to be saved means that you're inducted into the church. You're part of the church, right? And a lot of people here say, ah, ah, wait a minute. Is that always the case? Right? Are you always, um, are all saved people in the church? And so here I want to pause and talk about what does it mean when we say we are baptized into one body? And so I have this little chart uh, to help us make this distinction. All right, so this is the visible church. This is the invisible church. Okay? And um, when I mean the visible church, I'm talking about everyone who is baptized. I'm talking about uh, the church as we see it. And when I talk about invisible church, I'm talking about everyone who is saved, right? Um, everyone who's been redeemed, regenerate, and this is the church that God sees, as God sees it. Okay? And this distinction is, we have to make this, this, this distinction because is everyone who is baptized saved? We talked about this last week. Is everyone who is baptized saved? Justin. Yes. Yes? I'm going to say no. <laughs> Who remembers why not? Is everyone who's baptized saved? Because baptism isn't... Baptism doesn't save you. Exactly. Who saves you? Jesus saves you. So this sign of salvation doesn't save you. The sign only has value and meaning and worth if you receive it by faith. That means if you're connected to Jesus, right? So we have to make this distinction because everyone who is baptized is also not saved. There are people who are saved but not baptized. Right? We understand. There are people who are saved but not baptized. Classic example, thief on the cross. He was not baptized. There are people who are baptized but not saved. Right? This is true. There are people who are baptized and then later on they say it was all bunk. I don't believe any a word of it and they leave the church. Right? And these people right here, it's so small. It should be much bigger, right? Because this is the norm. This is the way things ought to be. They're, sa- they're, ba- uh, they're saved and they're baptized. This is the way it ought to be. Right, um, and so the reason why we need to have this distinction is because it helps us to understand baptism. Because baptism is how you enter is how you enter the visible church. So that now we understand what Paul is talking about. Right, when Paul says you are baptized into one body. 
he's talking about the church. Right? And so, baptism and church membership are synonymous. They're one and the same thing. Right? You know, when you when you become a church member, or when you become a baptized, when you become baptized, you get a certificate sometimes. When you become a church member, you you get a certificate sometimes. It's the same document. It should be. Right? Um, and Unfortunately, in some churches, baptism and church membership are disassociated, right? So that baptism is a sign of your faith. It means that you're, you know, you, you really believe. A lot of people say, I want to wait until I have a more consistent faith, which is a very flawed view of it. A lot of people think, oh, and, ba- and membership is sort of like a, like a sub-deaconship or something. It means you're really active in the church, right? Like people say, oh, I really see you doing a lot. Maybe you should be a member, Right? Um, but they're one and the same thing, right? To be united to Christ is to be united to the church. And therefore, and I'm going to say something a little bit controversial, therefore, it is improper and and mistaken for campus ministries like crew, like InterVarsity, to do baptisms, right? Because what are they baptizing people into, right? Paul's language is you're baptized into something. You're into a community. What are you baptizing people into when you're a campus ministry? And I've heard the response, we're baptizing people into the, not the visible church, because they're not a church. They're baptizing people into the invisible church. But then you're saying, everyone you baptized is saved. And that's just not true. It's completely mistaken. You can only be baptized into the visible church. Does that make sense? It's a church sacrament. It's not a general thing that you just do, any Christians can do. Christians can talk to each other, they can fellowship with each other, they can pray for each other, but you can only do baptism and Lord's Supper in the church. Because it's a church sign. It's a, it's a, it's a, it has implications for the church. Any questions or comments? Uh, quick question. So on that point, uh, the visible church, though, is uh, you know, it's a collection of all, all you know Christians who were baptized, right? So in the sense, like, if they baptize... In campus ministry, like, can't they be baptized into, like, you know, a church that they would eventually go to? No, because, for example, um, yeah. like a Mormon, mm-hmm. like a like a Mormon campus ministry. Let's say they do baptism. Yeah. Would I say that they're inside the visible Christian visible church? I'll say no. no. Yeah. Right, because they're not under. I, I don't know them. Who mm-hmm. are they? Yeah. So you can only be baptized into a visible church in which it's governed by elders. Mm-hmm. The, the the church has determine and decided these yeah. things. Right? It has to be defined by the church. It. So it's it's not so what it has become in the modern world is become this highly individualized thing mm-hmm. where anyone can be baptized in any setting by whoever. Mm-hmm. But it has to be connected to community. It has to be connected to church. So that would be my response. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? So then in an ideal situation, mm-hmm. the correct protocol <coughs> for pair campus ministry would be would you like to get baptized? Let's go to your local church. That's right. You okay. need to be connected to, accountable to a church. Mm-hmm. Campus ministry is a wonderful thing, wonderful aid, wonderful assistance to the church, a wonderful fellowship for students in, 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 in college, but it's not the church. Mm-hmm. There are no elders. There, are no, uh, there ought not to be sacraments. There's no Sunday worship, corporate worship. All right, so there are some implications to this. The reason why I drew this out is because there's a lot of implications. The first implications 
is that do we see the invisible church? Let me give you a big hint. <laughs> Just like Wonder Woman's plane. Do you see the invisible church? No. Because only God sees it. This is the church as God sees it. So the visible church is what we see, and therefore, okay, this is a this is a this is a profound implication, okay? And this is going to cook your noodle. The visible church is all we see. That's it. You don't see the invisible church because you have no idea what's going on in the heart. Mm-hmm. You have no idea, right? The, in the invisible church, by the way, includes people who have lapsed, who are like, they're like, you know, drunk and they're gambling in Las Vegas. They're like this complete degenerate. And they're in the invisible church because God has chosen them. He loves them and he will call them back to him. We just don't know, Right. So all we see is the visible church, right? And therefore, we operate for practical reasons. This is the only thing there is, because we have no access to the invisible church. And therefore, this is the implication, we act as if all baptized people are, well, I won't say saved, are Christians, Right? And all non-baptized people are non-Christians. That's the implication. Because you enter the visible church, the sign of the visible church is baptism. That's the only thing we have access to. We don't know your heart. We only know your outward profession. And baptism is your outward profession. And therefore... We treat all baptized people as Christians. We treat all non-baptized people as non-Christians. That is the practical implication. Right? Um, Of course, that's not strictly true. But this is a theoretical conception. Does that make sense? We don't live like this. Because we don't see the invisible church again. Um, We know it's there because Jesus gives the parable of what? The wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. Right? Not all who call me Lord, Lord. Not all who are here. I know, right? Um, And therefore, second implication. Controversial. Okay? Second implication is the Lord's Supper is only for people in here. Only baptized members of either this church or another church who are visiting. So if you're not baptized, and if you're not a member of the church, you may not partake of the Lord's Supper. People have objections to that. Why not? I'm in the invisible church. Well, that's good. I'm glad you're in the invisible church. But I don't know that. Mm-hmm. Right? And so the church has to... Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, um, uh, don't take the supper in an unworthy manner. Mm-hmm. Right? How is the church going to enforce that unworthy manner rule. We have to have rules. And the rule is very simple. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're baptized, if you profess faith in him, you may partake of the supper and not otherwise. Mm-hmm. And this object, this, this um, offends and this upsets a lot of people because we live in a very individualistic culture. And the individualistic culture wants to say there's no church, everyone's just a free-floating agent, right? I can do whatever I want. But that's not biblical and it's not communal and it's not loving 
Because the Lord's Supper is a family meal. Mm-hmm. Only if you're only in the family can you eat this meal. What if like a burglar just snuck into the house and he sat down at the meal and he started eating? You're like, who are you? I'm eating your meal. I'm a part of your family. No, you're not. I don't know you. Who are you? Um, sorry, a little bit off topic, but regarding that passage that you just quoted from, yes, with, um, the Lord's Supper and you know, First Corinthians eleven. Yeah, yeah um, I've heard people say that like that is a verse that they kind of take when they're not when they feel like they're not in the right place to take the Lord's Supper. Even though they are believers, they will not. Yeah, so it has vast implications. But if you read the First Corinthians 11, he's talking about, he says there are some people who eat um, by themselves, uh, while other poor people, so it was separating the rich and the poor, right? Mm-hmm. So the rich would have this lavish meal, and the poor people would be like starving outside. Mm-hmm. And Paul says, that is not the Lord's Supper. You're eating in an unworthy manner, because the Lord's Supper is a communal meal, right? It's not just vertical, it's horizontal. Right, it's a, it's a family, it's a communal meal. So you have to be in the community mm-hmm. to eat it. There are outsiders and insiders. There are non-believers and believers. And the supper is only for believers. How do we know you're a believer? Let's not make up anything that the Bible has not given us. Mm-hmm. The Bible has given us the sign of a believer is baptism. Mm-hmm. So that's what it is. Any further questions? Uh, quick question. Yeah. So, I mean, on on that that model, um, I think it makes so much sense that you know, since the only thing you can see is baptism, you know, you treat all baptized Christians all unless they apostatize. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But then it seems like there's that, you know, like you said, there's a tension between that and the real, you know, the real model, which is this. So, mm-hmm. like, there's no um, sort of reconciliation, or there's no application of this there is that really like you know? Yeah. So what this model yeah. means is that there will absolutely yeah. be non saved people taking mm-hmm. the supper. Yeah. And there will absolutely be, be mm-hmm. saved, redeemed people who are, we are barring from the supper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's all going to be sorted out when? When King Jesus comes back. Mm-hmm. And King Jesus will separate the wheat and tares, the sheep and the goats. Mm-hmm. And many who say, many who say, Lord, Lord, Jesus will say, I don't know you. Mm-hmm. The visible church. What ultimately matters is you're in the invisible church, right? But that doesn't mean, aha, that's all that matters, invisible church, who cares about the visible church? No, that's deeply flawed. This is the right place you want to be, right? But there are people here and there are people here, and we have to think about that conception. Does that make sense? All right, so let's go on. Final point, baptism is a passive rite versus the active rite of the Lord's Supper. We talked about this last week, right? Um, Why is baptism passive? Right? Because baptism, what's happening? You're just standing there. Mm-hmm. Right? Or in the Baptist case, you're just, a lot, you, you know, you don't lower yourself. I've never seen nobody, anybody <laughs> lower themselves, right? You're lowered down. So you're completely inert. You should not be active. You know, you should be dancing, right? So baptism is being done to us. Why? Because it symbolizes our salvation, that our sins are cleansed away. Do we clean our own sins? No. God cleanses us. So the baptism is applied to us. We don't, right? Because that, that's not gospel. How would, notice that's not the sign. The sign is what? Somebody doing it to you, right? Uh, versus the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we're active. We're eating, right? Um, why? Because it symbolizes fellowship and sanctification. And fellowship with Christ is an active thing. It's a syncretistic thing, right? It is God's grace calling you changing your heart, but you have to also actively participate and do. 
right? Sanctification doesn't just happen when you lay down, right? So it's not like you lay down and someone spoon feeds you the food. Mm-hmm. That's not the gospel either. What is the gospel? You you eat, right? Together as a and notice you do it always in community. You never so Lord's Supper should never be eaten in your room by yourself. Because what does that mean? It means Christianity is a lone ranger experience. But you always eat it with other people. That tells us a lot about the Christian life. And so baptism is a once for all right, never to be repeated again. So a lot of people say I've been baptized. I was baptized when I was you know in college, but then I realized I didn't really believe the gospel, and I and, and now I really believe. Now that I'm 30, can I be baptized again? I love the sentiment. I understand the sentiment, but you're not baptized again. You know why? Because if you were baptized a second time, what would that be saying? That would be saying that God has to cleanse you multiple times. Mm-hmm. He cleanses you only once, and you're saved. You're His. There's a, a lot of times there's a separation between the sign and the reality. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to apply the sign repeatedly. Like every time, you know, someone comes to me, you know what, I really believe now. Can I be baptized for the fifth time? Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Whereas the supper, you don't just eat it one supper. You eat it all the time. You get together with your family. You eat again and again and again. Um, what about if you were baptized in, like, a Catholic church? Or a Mormon church, if they do baptism. So, this is a, a debate and discussion a lot of Christians have. Mm-hmm. Um, among Presbyterians, we accept uh, Roman Catholic baptism, but not Mormon baptism. Mm-hmm. The reason why is because the Mormons do not... Um, the Mormons... Because what does Jesus say at the end of Matthew 28? He says, I want you to uh, make disciples, baptizing them, what? In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Mormons don't do that. Uh, they don't believe in the Trinity. So their baptism is illegitimate. We, we disavow their, their baptism, not because of the mode, but because they don't know God. They're baptizing in some strange God, right? They're Mormon Jesus, right? But the Roman Catholics, we acknowledge, believe the Trinity. So when they baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. the church is, is, is mistaken when it comes to justification. Yeah. The church is deeply flawed in so many profound ways. Mm-hmm. But we accept the baptism because the baptism doesn't depend on the correct, like, it doesn't depend on everything being right. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't even depend on you knowing what's going on, mm-hmm. right? Um, simply being baptized into, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Is accepted. There are a lot of Christians who say, no, that's not true. So if you've been baptized by a Roman Catholic, you have to be rebaptized. Mm-hmm. But this is, a, in my opinion, that's a little bit of an esoteric discussion. I just accept. As a good Presbyterian, you know what Presbyterianism means? It means you say, okay. <laughs> 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 that's really what it means. Okay. Because you, know, you submit to your brothers, right? Mm-hmm. The Baptist is like, no, I've got to, mm, i got to think it through. So, any other questions? That's a great question. Um, what are your thoughts on infant versus adult baptism? We will talk about that next week. Okay. So that's a special, Part four two. special class. Oh, get ready. <laughs> yeah. I will persuade you. No, okay. He gives you a book, too. <laughs> <laughs> any other questions? All right. So, thank you for being uh, an attentive and participatory class. Uh, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this wonderful gift of the sign and the seal of baptism. And in this uh, drama, in this tactile experience, when we feel the water on us, we remember that you washed us clean because of Jesus Christ. That we're united to you in your death and in your resurrection. 
And we also remember that we're connected to Christian brothers and sisters, that we are one body. We, there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no slave, there's no free, but we are one. And uh, Lord, we, we're, we're about to have church service, and so let us experience and practice and, and, and live that out, the oneness of Christian community. Praise the Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, thank you.